And toward the end of the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and her, her friends are standing there before the great and powerful Oz. They've done what the Oz asked her to do, asked them to do. They got rid of the Wicked Witch of the West. Dorothy liquidated her, as uh, the Wizard of Oz puts it. He, she melted her with water. And they go back to the Wizard of Oz, not only to tell him the good news, but also to ask him to keep his promise. He promised to give the scarecrow a brain, to give the tin man a heart, to give the lion courage, and to get Dorothy back to her home. But the great and powerful Oz shouts from his his smoke and fire-filled stage that he needs more time to think about it, to come back tomorrow. Well, Well, with what they've been through, they're not having it. They come back, they, they tell him, look, you've had enough time. And as he's warning them of his wrath, Dorothy says something really wise. She says, if you really were great and powerful, you'd keep your promises. Well, Dorothy's little dog, Toto, wandered over to a curtain while this was all going on. And uh, as this wizard is spouting off more and more co- commands and, and how they how could they have the audacity to, to question him? Toto pulls back the curtain and tells the truth and shows the truth about this great and powerful Oz. And when they notice what Toto's done, he's pulled back the curtain. He's revealed this man. He's back there. He's moving levers and switching wheels, and, and he's talking into a microphone. Well, the man notices too, and he covers the curtain back over him. And then you hear the great... Oz say, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, it's too late. So the Wizard of Oz continues to try to spout all these commands and everything, but at that point, Dorothy and her friends, they go over and they pull back the curtain again. And she asks them, who are you? And and it's kind of humorous the way he responds. He starts to turn to the microphone and say, I'm the great and powerful. And then he, he pulls away, and in his own frail voice, he finishes Wizard of Oz. Jig is up. How different is that than our God? Now, our God truly is great and powerful, and he keeps his promises. And, and he doesn't put up a front of power to hide his weakness. He actually comes in weakness to display his power. That's how he actually saves us. That's what Jesus has done. That's what he's done in Jesus. Now, there's one other way that he's not like the Wizard of Oz. There, there was a mystery to what was going on. But we don't need Toto. God is actually the one who pulls back the curtain to reveal what's really happening. He's completely open with us. When Jesus came, he started to pull back the curtain on how God was keeping his promises. And then after his death and resurrection, he continued through his apostles to pull back the curtain still more so that we could understand how God was keeping his promises. Now, there's a few different ways that people have approached how the New Testament explains the Old Testament. Uh, there are those who basically want to tear the curtain completely off and burn it so there's not a shred of evidence of any differences between the Old and the New Testaments. Then there are those who kind of want to pull the curtain back a little bit more and say, you know what, that, that's still mystery. I had actually a few professors who got really close to saying, pay no attention to what the apostles are doing. It's weird. We can't replicate it. Doesn't fit with our understanding of the Old Testament. All we can say is they were inspired, 
and it's not really what the Old Testament's talking about. I don't exactly know how we've gotten to this place where you have these two extremes. Uh, I have my own ideas that I'd be more than happy to share with you, but it is conjecture. <laughs> it involves uh, these, this, this dominated, Gentile-dominated early church. It was influenced by its Roman and Greek thinking, and they got off track. And, and though the reformers, the people, the believers in the Reformation tried to correct some of those problems, I don't think they went far enough. And then there are those in more modern times who I think overcorrected the problem. But at any rate, what we're left with are these, these two extremes. One emphasizes the continuity between the Testaments. And they end up destroying any, any trace of the fact that there are still some differences between what was happening in the Old Testament and what was happening in the New. But then the other side, again, it tries to pull back the curtain a little bit and say, I know that the Bible says, that the New Testament says that's fulfillment, but it's really not what the Old Testament was talking about. They're overemphasizing the discontinuity between the Testaments. Now, why bring up something like this when it's controversial, when not everybody even in this room agrees with it? Well, it's what Paul's talking about in this passage. He's addressing this issue. He's, he's helping us understand how what Jesus has done fits with what the Old Testament was talking about, especially what God was doing with Abraham. And so regardless of where we, we find ourselves on this spectrum from discontinuity to continuity, we need to hear Paul out this morning. See, many of us have been taught a system for understanding the relationship between the Old and the New Testament, whether we realized it was a system or not. And, and that's not a problem, ultimately. What happens when you're, you're studying the Bible and trying to fit it together and draw some big-picture conclusions, you end up developing these, these systems, these tools to help you understand the Bible. The problem comes when we look at those systems, those tools, to try to understand the Bible, and we fail to distinguish them from the Bible itself. The problem is when they become an equal authority with the Bible that we cannot question. So that if we read something in the Bible that doesn't match the way we put the Bible together, we try to cram the Bible into our system when our system actually needs to change. So... If we're unwilling to change our conclusions, those big picture conclusions, if we're unwilling to change our system, whether that's because it's all we've known or because of the people, the venerated people in our lives who taught it to us, understand what we've done. We have elevated that system to the same level of authority as Scripture itself. That system of belief has become our tradition. And that venerated teacher is our Pope. So Paul, what he's doing here in this passage, he's explaining his gospel in the context of Judaism. Judaism had a system of thought. And Paul was a part of that. As a Pharisee, he believed this is what the Old Testament was talking about. And then what happened is he was introduced to the risen Jesus. And it transformed the way that he understood the Old Testament. And so what he's doing in, the, in his letters is he's helping us understand how the Old Testament has to do with what's happened now that Jesus has come. So, on the one hand, there is discontinuity. What's happened now that Jesus has come is fulfillment. It is something really new. But there's also continuity still with what God has done. It's the same God. What God was doing in the Old Testament 
has to do with God, with what God's doing here in the new. So what Paul is saying is that the great and powerful God is keeping his promises. He's pulled back the curtain on himself, on what he's been doing, on how he's gone about to keep the promises he made in the Old Testament. So we need to hear Paul out. We need to listen to what Paul actually says. And what Paul says is that Jesus, this is what he says throughout the New Testament, Jesus is the key to the scriptures, all of them. And then the key to our relationship to all the scriptures is our faith in Jesus. So in essence, faith in Jesus is the key to the scriptures. That's what Paul's going to develop. He's going to unpack that in three ways in our passage this morning. In verses 3 through 16, he's going to explain that the promised inheritance is for those who believe. Then in verses 16 through 22, there's overlap. He's going to explain that the promised offspring are those who believe. And finally, in verses 22 through 25, he's going to explain that the scriptures are for those who believe. So let's jump right into this. You can turn to Romans, again, chapter 4. Again, that's on page 885. And we're going to look at the first way that faith is the key to the scriptures. In the first four verses of this section, starting in verse 13, Paul says that the promised inheritance is for those who believe. So in verse 13, Paul is responding to what he said earlier in the chapter. In verses 9 through 12, Paul was arguing that both Jewish people and Gentiles have a righteous status by faith in Jesus. Abraham is the father of both believing Jewish people and Gentiles who believe. So Abraham is the father in that he's the pioneer of this new humanity. He unites those who were a part of God's old covenant people with those who had been excluded from that covenant. He does that because he was a part of the nations and at the same time a father of this nation brought about by the old covenant. So now that Jesus has come, the fulfillment of what God was doing in the Old Testament It unites us by faith in Jesus. So what he's doing beginning in verse 13 is he's taking the argument a step further. Verses 11 and 12 said that he was the father of the old covenant member who believes in Jesus. And he's also the father of the Gentile who believes in Jesus. And so here he's explaining that. He says, by faith in Jesus, both are also heirs of the inheritance that God promised to Abraham. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise that God made to Abraham and to his offspring did not come through keeping the law. The promise that God made Abraham came through the righteousness of faith. That's the same thing as saying it came through being justified by faith in Jesus. So we can recall that God made unconditional promises to Abraham at the end of Genesis 15. Remember, he was the only one to pass through those sacrifices. He was, he was saying he was going to see those covenant promises through to the end. He was guaranteeing it. The Lord himself would ensure that the stipulations of their agreement were met. And you say, well, what stipulations? Genesis 17 gives us the first mention of them. Remember what God told Abraham. 
He said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Which is also to say, be holy, for I am holy. Which is also to say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. So it's clear that the promises God made to Abraham of land and offspring, those were passed on to Israel. That is very clear in the rest of the Pentateuch. But it's also equally clear that their experience of those promises were con- was conditioned by obedience. So Deuteronomy 28.2 says, All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. The blessings of innumerable descendants or offspring and taking possession of the land. They, were, they would only be theirs if they obeyed. That's why if they disobeyed, Deuteronomy 26 and, or 28, 62 and 63 says, Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven. Hear the Abrahamic promise there. You shall be few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And he goes on to say, you shall be plucked off the land. Again, Abrahamic promise that you are entering to take possession using the language that Paul's going to use here. So Paul's been very clear. God, God's people, they did not obey. The promise did not come by obeying the law. Notice what would have been the case. What would have happened if that was how you received the promise. He says in verse 14, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. If the only way to receive the promises God made to Abraham were through obeying the law, it would never happen. Faith would be pointless and the promises would never be met. Why? Because we are under the power of sin and do not obey as we are required to. The law didn't actually make the situation better either. That's what Paul goes on to say in verse 15. The law actually brought wrath, more wrath. If God hadn't revealed his commands, they would just be sinners. But now that he revealed his commands, they're not only sinners, they're transgressors. Transgression is something more. So on the one hand, if someone does something wrong, but they're, they're ignorant of the wrong, that's one thing. But if somebody's told not to do something, and then they do it, that's even worse. One commentator compared it to trespassing, right? If you say you're in your friend's backyard and in their woods, and, and you don't really know their property very well, so you wander into somebody else's yard. You're trespassing, and, and you shouldn't do that. But how different is it if you see the sign that says no trespassing and you walk right past it? That's worse. That's what Paul's talking about here. The the law had absolutely no power to address our sin. It was not the solution. It was pointing to the solution. So when these Jewish people try to use it for the solution, all they can do is, is increase their wrath. The wrath that they would face. The law, it simply, by using it that way, made sinners into transgressors, rebellious sinners into rebellious transgressors. And so Paul concludes in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. When it rests on our efforts, 
there's no hope. It has to be based on God's undeserved kindness to us. That's what grace is. The only way for us to receive promise, for anyone to receive promise, the promise that God guaranteed to all his offspring is by faith. Remember, God did guarantee that to Abraham in Genesis 15. Now, here's where it gets a little dicey, though, because notice how Paul defines all Abraham's offspring. The next two phrases are in apposition to each other. That basically means that they're defining, the next two phrases are defining what he means by all his offspring. By offspring, he means, more literally, not only the one who is from the law, but also the one who is of the faith of Abraham. So Paul's taking us back to verses 11 and 12. What he's talking about is these two are both included. So those who are from the law here, he's not talking about those who are trying to obey in order to be righteous. He's talking about those who are part of the old covenant. So this is a reference really to the Jewish person who believes. Because if you look at the beginning of verse 16, that's how we started this. The word faith At the beginning, it rules or it dominates the verse. So Paul's saying the offspring God promised Abraham includes both Jewish people who believe and Gentiles who believe. Now we're going to look more into the offspring in the next section. But but what we need to see here is what this offspring was promised through Abraham. In verse 14, Paul mentions the heirs of the promise. What heirs? What did they inherit? Well, in verse 13, he explains the promise is that Abraham would be heir of the world. That promise was to him and his offspring. Now, when we go back to Genesis, we go back to Genesis 13 and 15 and 17, say, I don't see God saying that Abraham would receive the world as his possession. The word possession, though, is as found in places like Genesis 15, 7, that was translated into Greek using the verb form of the word Paul uses here for heir. So Paul's talking about the same thing as the possession of land that we see in Genesis. This is related to the word inheritance that's used in Numbers and Joshua to talk about the land. So we don't see an explicit promise of that inheritance that it includes the whole world. But we do see a hint of it even in Genesis. In Genesis twenty-two seventeen. The Lord promised, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. It's the same wording that possess, same wording Paul's using to talk about inheritance here. What's interesting about the promise is this word offspring. You can use that word to talk about many or to talk about one. And in Hebrew, how you determine that is based on the pronouns that are used. Well, the pronoun used here is his. It's singular. So what Genesis twenty two seventeen is talking about, he's not referring to the many offspring. He's referring to one offspring in particular. Psalm 2 tells us who that is. There are other passages as well, but in verse 8, the Lord tells the messianic descendant of David, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, similar word as found here, and the ends of the earth your possession. Ends of the earth. Remember what the Lord told David's Lord. Psalm 110.1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So later on, Solomon does something really interesting. He, he, 
he takes the promise from Exodus 23:31, this promise of land. In Exodus 23:31, it's described as from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to, more literally, the river. Referring to the Euphrates, but it, in Hebrew it just says the river. Solomon then says, he uses that, he refers to that in Psalm 72, 8, and he says of the Messiah's possession, it will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See the expansion of God's promise made to Abraham to include the ends of the earth, to include the whole world. And it's through the Messiah that God's people then possess that kingdom that covers the earth, and you see that in Daniel especially in Daniel 7, where all the kingdoms are given to the Son of Man who reigns over the whole world and also to the saints who reign with him. The Son of Man possesses the gate of his enemies. So Paul, what Paul's doing, he's not making this up. It's not actually crazy. What he's doing is actually tracking with the progressive revelation in the Old Testament itself. The Old Testament was bringing us to this point. And and you see a similar expansion elsewhere. You see it in Isaiah, where God's vineyard, like I read this morning, expands to the ends of the earth. Jacob, Israel, to the ends of the earth. You see it toward the end of Isaiah, which mentions the promise as new heavens and new earth. There's an expansion. So what's the true significance of what Paul's saying? He's explaining that this promise of land that was originally given to Abraham and his offspring and later seen to encompass the whole world, that promise is received on the basis of faith. That's true not only for the Jewish person who believes, but also Gentiles who believe. That's the only way it can work. We can only receive God's promise Through the Messiah. He is the only one who actually keeps all the stipulations. Who keeps the covenant. He's the only one who deserves to be blessed. He's the only one who deserves the inheritance. He's the only one who deserves the land. It is only by being connected to him that those promises can be received. By faith. In the Son. So the promised inheritance is for those who believe. That's what Paul's saying. But let's come back now to the the offspring. Let's go back to verse 16. This is the second way that faith is the key to the scriptures. Paul says that the promised offspring are those who believe. That's Paul's argument that he begins in verse 16. So there's two words that get repeated throughout this, very related words. The term offspring and father. You can tell how they're related. Abraham is the father of this offspring. And Paul's explaining in verse 16 that this fatherhood is based on faith. Not based on the old covenant. It's not simply given to those who are, according to the flesh, descended from Abraham. The promised inheritance, which include the whole world, includes the whole world, is only guaranteed on the basis of grace to Abraham's offspring. And again, there's no other way to do that. It has to be by faith, not by works. So that's how Abraham is the father of us all. Remember who Paul's talking to. He's talking to Christians. It includes some Jewish Christians, 
but it's primarily Gentile Christians that he includes as the, Abraham is the father of. And look at what he uses, the scripture he uses to apply to this, what he's talking about. He says in verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. That's Genesis 17, 5. Promise to Abraham. Now, some people looked at that in Genesis. They look at that and they say, let's talk about the Ishmaelites, right? Well, no, because Ishmael was born before that promise was made. And, and so you might say, well, it's the sons of Keturah. And it's Esau, the Edomites. So that's, those are the nations that God was going to give. I understand that thinking, but the problem is this promise was transferred to Jacob. As the other promises were. So in Genesis 35.11, God tells Jacob, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. We could translate it, an assembly of nations, or like the idea is translated in the New Testament, a church of nations. So this is how God's keeping that promise of offspring, as innumerable as the stars, who are going to inherit the earth. Paul's saying this was the plan. This is how God keeps that promise. The offspring are those who have faith in Jesus. And Paul says the same thing in Galatians. In Galatians 3.7, he says, those of faith are the sons of Abraham. And then two verses later, he says, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And this was, according to Galatians 3.14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And finally, in verse 29, Paul says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He's very clear throughout. It's just like Rich Mullins sings. Sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. If you believe, you can sing that. Notice the nature, though, of, of Abraham's faith. The way Paul talks about this, he does not talk about a momentary experience. So Abraham really meant it, and now that's all that really mattered. That's not the way he talks. What he, what he points out specifically is the kind of faith he, he had, but really the stress is on the object of his faith. He says that he believed in one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let's look at the second part of that first. Look at the Lord's promise from Genesis 17.5. The way it's stated in the Hebrew as well as the Greek here, it's stated as though it's already happened. He said, I have made you the father of many nations. It hadn't happened yet, but God can speak about things as though they've already taken place. That's the way that I think it should be translated. The NET translates this a little closer to the Greek. It says that the, this is the God who summons the things that do not exist as though they already do. When God speaks, it's as though it's done because it's as good as done. It's going to happen. So this is also... As the Jewish people in Paul's day would pray in their 18 benedictions, the God who gives life to the dead. And Hannah prayed something very similar. In 1 Samuel 2.6, when the Lord blessed her with a child after she was barren. Sounds very similar to Abraham and Sarah's situation. She prays this. I think the CSB does a good job. It translates it, the Lord brings death and gives life. It's by means of faith in this kind of God that resulted in Abraham becoming the father 
of many nations. It was a faith, he says, it involved believing both against hope and in hope in verse 18. He'd been told, so shall your offspring be in Genesis 15, 5. That's what he believed. But there was this problem. Like Hannah, his wife Sarah was barren. He was about 100 years old. So he, instead of hoping in what he saw, he set his hope in the Lord. The God who gives life to the dead. That was the God who promised him this. But what Paul's saying here is that that belief, that faith, was against all normal hope. Abraham was very aware of the problem that he faced. In Genesis 17, you remember what happened? When the Lord told him, hey, you know what? I know you had Ishmael, but that's, that's not the son of promise. You're going to have a son with Sarah. What did he do? He laughed. In fact, that's how Isaac gets his name. He laughs. Now, what we learn in that passage when we looked at it was that Abraham was not doubting the promise. He was struggling to understand how God would bring it about. So he actually never stopped believing. He continued to believe that God would keep his promise, even as he struggled with what God was saying. And that's why Paul can describe Abraham the way that he does here, is considering his own body in this way. Abraham's nearly 100 years old. He's not a spring chicken. He had called his body as good as dead. And he knew that Sarah's womb was dead. That's more literally how Paul's describing her barrenness. He does that deliberately. But the way that he considers his body, he, he describes it this way. It's, it's still one of faith. He says it, it's not a faith that's weakening so as to disappear. Through this revelation, in fact, his faith was strengthened, Paul says. So in spite of the fact that what God said doesn't happen, and Abraham knew that, Abraham continued to believe. Now, how do we know he continued to believe? Because even in that passage, he responds to the promise by obeying. obeying. He, he circumcises his whole household. That response of faith shown in his obedience, that response gave glory to God. Paul says he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. We give glory to God when we recognize God for who he is, when we see him as he really is, and when we respond in light of that. This is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. And Abraham responded to that with faith in that God. He believed him, he trusted him, he put all his chips on that God. He put all his hopes In that powerful God, he believed that he would keep his promises. He was a great and powerful God. And so based on that that faith, or, or because he believed and then you saw the obedience that flowed out of that, he glorified God. He did the very thing that humanity fails to do, according to what Paul said in Romans 1.21. The very thing that we're required to do as creations of God they failed to do, and, and humanity has failed to do, and that's why we've, we've brought wrath on ourselves. So by faith, Abraham does what we're made to do. Give God glory. What we do, how we do that, again, is we see God as he is. The great and powerful God who we trust, we believe, and we live in line with that. Our life matches that, shows that we do believe that. And so Paul concludes in verse 22, That is why faith 
his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That is why faith was the means by which God declared him to have a righteous status. Abraham was shown the truth about God. He was convinced of that truth. He set his hope in what God had said. And that's a hope, and that's a faith rather, that relies on God, not on yourself in any way. It was a genuine faith that relies not, not on what we see, not just on what we see. Now, what we can do is we can deduce from this that, that even though his faith didn't weaken, though it, it didn't waver in the sense that he stopped believing, that's what Paul means in, chapter, in verse 30, 20. Verse 20, that's what he's talking about. His faith grew stronger. It does say that, right? That means that even though it didn't weaken, there is a sense in which it was weak. It needed to be strengthened. So Paul, he talks about growth in Abraham's faith. He's not saying that what really matters in our faith is our subjective quality to our faith. He's not saying you have to, you have to believe enough. You have to believe enough like Abraham did. That's not what he's saying. Abraham's faith needed to grow, but even as it needed to grow, it still was, it resulted in justification, even in weakness. And even in weakness, he still was convinced that God was going to keep his promises, even as he struggled with how. I think Tim Keller does a, a he's very helpful in explaining the significance of this. He does it by comparing two people who want to fly from the U.S. to the U.K., so you can have one person who straps feathers to their arms and has complete confidence that they can fly from New York to London. Complete confidence. And then you can have another person who is scared to death to get on a jet airplane. Scared. They're, they're, they're even shaking as they get on that plane, but that's what they're trusting to get them from JFK to Heathrow. One person could have the steadiest of hands as they jump off the, the Statue of Liberty and attempt to fly to the UK. The other person could be trembling as that jet takes off. But the object of their faith is what really matters. One person has complete confidence in the wrong object. And the other person has, has kind of a weaker confidence in the right object. So it's not about how strong we are if we believe. It's about the God that we put our trust in. Now, at the same time, some people talk about faith as, as an irrational leap. So there are those who believe, they assume that faith means ignoring the facts. Faith's paying no attention to reality, just responding irrationally. That's not true. On the one hand, we know Abraham knows the facts. He's not ignoring them. He knows his age. He knows the barrenness of, a, of his wife. You know, sometimes people think, well, the ancients didn't really understand how things worked. That's why they could believe in miracles. Abraham knows the birds and the bees. He knows about barrenness. Barren women don't have children. But those aren't the only facts. See, the materialists in our world, they view the world as though those are the only facts. That's the only thing to consider, what you see, what you observe. And since you don't observe miracles, they would say it's irrational to believe that God could do something that people would call miraculous. 
What faith is doing, what it's actually doing, is it's looking at all the facts. Yes, barren women don't have children, but not because there's some inviolable law that must take place. No, it's because that's what God usually does. But God is also able to do something different if he so chooses. So faith takes into consideration that if God promises to do something, it doesn't matter what we've observed. And if we've never observed what he said he will do, we still trust and believe that God can do it and will do it. He is great and powerful. If God really is infinite, if he's sovereign, if he's good, then it's actually by definition rational to believe what he says. Even if what he says seems like it's miraculous and impossible. It's faith in this God that shows us who the offspring are that God promised. All his offspring, that's what verse 16 points out, are all who believe with this enduring faith. That includes believing members of the Old Covenant as well as some from all the nations. So the promised offspring are those who believe. The third way that faith is the key to the scriptures is found in verses 22 through 25, where Paul shows that the scriptures are for those who believe. He starts by repeating this verse. He started this whole discussion really back in verse 3, where he quotes Genesis 15, 6. And here as he's closing out the section, he repeats his quote. And then in verse 23, in the first part of verse 24, he says, he explains it, he comments on it, but the words in verse in Genesis 15:6, it was counted to him, those weren't written for his sake alone, but for ours also. God didn't just record this for Abraham or for his offspring according to the flesh. It was also written for those who believe in Jesus. You know, God had you and I in mind when he inspired Moses to write that story about Abraham. If we believe So this story was ultimately pointing to our situation. Just as Abraham was declared to have a righteous status by faith, so we are counted righteous the same way. We who believe in him who God raised from the dead, and then he goes on to say, Jesus our Lord. Him who God raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Notice how Paul is making our faith even more similar with Abraham's. Paul usually says, that we're putting our trust in Jesus. Here he says we're putting our trust in the God who promised us things through his son. So our object of faith is the same. We're both believing in the God who gives life from the dead. Paul was very deliberate when he said that earlier in verse 17. He was deliberate in mentioning the dead and life-giving, those, those words. He brings them together again here in verse 24. And Paul comments then on Jesus, the one who died and was raised. He says in verse 25 that Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now I've read this chapter a number of times and I always thought that was kind of a weird ending. And it is a transition to the next part. It's a very interesting ending. Paul is saying that God the Father delivered up Jesus because of our trespasses. Because we 
have trespassed against God's intentions. You know, it wasn't just that, well, Jesus stepped forward and, and took the heat when his father was really angry with us. This is saying, that this is God who's taken the initiative. It's just as Isaiah 53.10 describes the situation with God and the Messiah. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, Jesus. So that, as he explains in verse 11, he could make many to be accounted righteous, just like he talks about here in, in Romans 4. And then in between those two statements, it says that his soul makes an offering for, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. That's a reference to the resurrection back in Isaiah, back in the Old Testament. What he's saying there in Isaiah 53, what Paul's saying here is that God the Father handed his own son over because of our sin. How did he raise his son for our justification? Everett Harrison, I thought, did a, was very helpful in pointing out the importance of the resurrection for our justification. He said that the resurrection of Christ was, ex- was essential for the exercise of faith. So think about it. If Jesus remained in the grave, would we believe in him? No, what would be the proof that he wasn't simply a failed Messiah whom God had cursed through the curse of crucifixion? The resurrection is what demonstrates, no, 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 no. He did not die for his own sins. So without the resurrection, we would not believe. And that is how we are justified, by faith. So Jesus was handed over to be crucified because we who live now were going to sin and deserve God's wrath. And he was raised from the dead because we were going to be convinced by that to put our trust in God who raised him from the dead so that we would be like Abraham, justified by faith. The Old Testament passage written about Abraham was written for us who were going to believe in Jesus so that we too would be justified and so that we would understand what God was doing. Like Abraham, we are ungodly. We are pagans in, in need of God to give us a righteous status that we don't deserve through Jesus. The Old Testament helps us understand that. And it helps us understand why that's so important that we have that righteous status. The Old Testament explains it's not arbitrary. God just really wants us to have righteous status. It tells us the importance. God planned to bless his people. It didn't didn't explain in the Old Testament exactly how that was going to reach all the families of the earth. It did point to that trajectory. But the progress of revelation in the Old Testament then climaxed in the coming of Jesus so that we now can look back at Genesis as Paul does, and throughout the Old Testament and see and understand why Jesus matters for us. Jesus matters for us because through Jesus, we're forgiven, we're accepted by God so that we can experience the blessing that God intended for his new creation before he had even created the world. Now, what does all that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that the most important response that we can have to this passage is to respond like Abraham to this good news. And that is not a faith that is irrational. We are aware of what's going on. We're aware that 
everything in the universe is, is, is moving toward entropy. Right? The, the universe is breaking down. It's not becoming newer and better. And, and our friends and relatives who, who have passed away, they're not raised from the dead. And we know that. What the gospel calls us to believe is different than we observe. And we're not dumb. We know that that's true. But we also recognize that what we observe is not, it's not the only fact. There is a God who created the world and promises to renew it. And there is a God who promised to resurrect everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus so that they can enjoy eternal life with him. Also promised to punish everyone who remains in their sin. So it's our hope that against all hope, you set all your hope in Jesus and in the God who brings life from the dead. Now, for those of us who, who are believing in the God who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, we, we need to see how our experience is exactly in line with what God promised Abraham. There is discontinuity between our experience and Abraham's because of what side of the cross we're on. We're on the fulfillment side of it. But there's also much continuity in terms of what God was doing. That is, that's exactly what Paul's teaching here. That's okay to disagree when it comes to these systems. Right? I, I acknowledge people disagree on this. These ways to try to put things together. But we, we shouldn't allow our systems to make us miss the point here in this passage. Jesus is the plan from the beginning. The Old Testament does not deviate from that plan. The Old Testament actually helps us understand the significance that Jesus has for our lives. So we cannot unhitch our lives from the Old Testament, as I've heard Andy Stanley say. If we do that, we're not going to understand Jesus as we should. We're not going to understand even how we relate to Jesus as we should. Stanley's dead wrong on that. The Old Testament is part of our Bible. And we would not understand what Paul is talking about here in this chapter if we didn't have Genesis and didn't study Genesis. So that's why we preach and teach from both Testaments. That's why every gospel preacher must teach and preach from both Testaments. If, if somebody's system, how they put things together, has led them to avoid the Old Testament because they don't think it really relates to us, they just preach from the New Testament, they have to ignore quite a bit of what the New Testament actually says. Faith in Jesus is the key to the Bible, the whole Bible. So when the curtain gets pulled back and we get to see how it's connected to what God was doing in the Old Testament, we should never tell people, pay no attention to what they're doing. We shouldn't suggest that, oh, Paul doesn't really make sense there. We need to listen to Paul. The God of the Old Testament is the same great and powerful God of the New Testament. He made promises in the Old Testament that he is keeping in the New Testament. And when we read about it and come to see what's happening, we are strengthened in our faith. Join me in prayer. 
Spirit, we recognize that what you've inspired here. Well, we, we've done a lot of interpreting. And sometimes we, in trying to take it all in, we kind of interpret ourselves into a box. So I do pray that you would grant us hearts that want to see what you say, that you would grant me a heart that truly wants to see what you actually say in your word. That I would not read your word as a way to prove a point or to fit things into the way I think. And that no one here would. That no one would take what they've learned in the past and crystallize it to the point where they cannot be taught. That you would continue to teach us, continue to grow us, I pray that you, you would never you would never allow me to reach this point where I really think I've learned it all and can't grow and change. At no point in my life, I pray that that would be true of all of us, that we would continue to take your word and that you would impress it on our lives and that you would grow us in your grace and that we'd be willing to adjust when, when our finite and fallen attempts at trying to put it all together, are revealed to be inaccurate, that we would be willing to change. And as we change, as we accept it, as we, our, our eyes are opened to see it, that we would be strengthened, that you would strengthen us to live in light of, of these promises that are being kept now. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you you would cause others, even in this room, to pay attention to it, maybe for the first time, that they would see truth about themselves and the truth about Jesus, the truth about this promise, the truth about God who promises it, that you would convince them of its truth. That they would set all their hopes in what has been accomplished through Jesus. That they would demonstrate that with a changed life. A life that wants to obey and pursues obedience, not in order for you to accept us, but on the basis of your strength at work in us. Not only want to want to do it, but to actually do it, to bear your fruit. Pray that that would be seen in us today. Amen.